What's up, Almost Founders, and welcome back to the most useful podcast for very early stage startup enthusiasts. My name is Michelangelo Valtancoli, and just like you, I am here to study, learn, and build products that people love. Today, I am joined by the incredible Fred Destin, one of the most recognized names in the European VC space. But before we get to it, I really want to urge you to check out Waves at meetwaves.com. Waves are small and private group chats for young startup enthusiasts where you can meet and bond with other founders with shared interests and goals. We also provide very unique opportunities to our top users, such as last week's tutoring session with today's guest, Fred Destin. Fred has been incredibly available and kind to the entire Waves community and team, so I want to give him a massive shout out, and I'm truly, truly honored to have him as a guest today. Only three years ago, he co-founded Stride VC with Harry Stebbings, a 100 million pound venture capital fund investing in early stage startups. He used to be general partner at Axel and partner at Atlas Venture. He's also been lead investor and board member on so many incredible companies, including Deliveroo, Kazoo, Zoopla, Pillpack, Secret Escape, Daily Motions, and I'm out of breath, but the list goes on and on and on. Today we are tackling the impossible but fascinating discussion of traction. What is it? Everybody talks about it, nobody actually knows what it is. Let's say I have a thousand new users on my app or I just made a first B2B sale. Is that considered traction? Well, so if you take a step back and you think about what a startup is, um, in the words of Stephen Gary Blank, it's a it's an experiment in search of repeatability, right? So in other words, a startup is constantly looking for a mixture of product market fit, you know, channels to market that can scale. And so you go through this very fast situation process where you're, you're learning about your users and your product and, and how the two fit together. And at some point, you know, you find ways in which you're gonna you're gonna be able to repeat that. Yeah, you're gonna achieve some form of scalability. Every every company today is a tech company. Effectively, the benefit of startups is they're insanely good at iterating quickly towards something that looks like traction. And the definition of traction depends on absolutely every business will have a different definition of traction. So if you're a gaming company, you know you run yourself on analytics and. You'll have traction when you know that your monetization funnel is functioning, which basically is going to be a very analytics-driven exercise. Do your uh, calculate your retention over time, uh, calculate your monetization over time, and then you'll know when you've got a monetization engine on your hands that works. If you're selling enterprise software to large enterprises, for example, you're not going to get anything that resembles traction for a long time in the sense that there won't be a lot of repeatability. You'll go through a period that we call spray and pray, where you're basically going to start signing up customers, you want to have a real idea as to whether that's repeatable. In other words, whether you've hit a segment where you just got lucky or you could start selling systematically before quite a while. And so in, in enterprise software, typically we get early sales. They're lumpy. They're not super predictable. And it takes you a while. It might take you a year or two, really, to start finding something that resembles repeatable traction. And repeatable traction, in that case, would be defined by, I know exactly who to engage at the client. So I know their title. I know the kind of person they are. I know who my champion is. I know who makes decisions on the budget. I know how to engage, pilot, and roll out the product. And if you can do that reliably, repeatably, then you start to have quote-unquote traction. So it's the reason why I think there's so much confusion around it is because there's no, there's no single definition. On top of that, 
VCs very often turn down startups because they say, well, come back to us when you've got traction. And then founders get frustrated because they're like, hey, how long is a piece of string? Do I need 10,000 users, 100,000 users, a million users? And the reality is there's no fixed answer to that because I think when, when VCs say no, they look at the overall picture of risk and the balance of risks and they'll say, how do I feel about the team? How do I feel about the product and the opportunity? And, and, and traction is one of these things that they'll look at. So I very often say it's the three T's, team, technology, and traction, and you're trying to maximize your surface area. So if you're a super deep tech company, it may be enough that you get a good team and a good tech asset, clearly. Uh, if you're a somewhat replicable consumer startup, then maybe you think you're super happy because you got 50,000 users, but maybe the VC you're talking to is seeing some early stage consumer companies that have a million users, right? Like I remember backing a company called Cinemagram. I backed them when they were 2 million. I think within four months, they were at 6 million. And, you know, that wasn't anything that exceptional. And actually that company interestingly died, kind of got to 10 or 12 million users. And then the, the tide turned somehow, the virality started going flat and they were gone within a year. And so, you know, it's, it's uh, it, yeah, I understand why it's a frustrating exercise for founders. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, it's very, very confusing from a founder's perspective because there is no aligned uh, definition. But as you said, it's very common for VCs to sort of require this sort of traction. However, I did see on one of your previous blog posts that Stride operates slightly differently. It's sort of, uh, I understand that your sweet spot, correct me if I'm wrong, is post-product but pre-traction. Is that the case and why do you think that's a better model? Um, well, first of all, I think there are many models that work. You just have to know what you're good at. Um, when I say post-product is because I have a lot of respect for design and engineering. And I think the difference between a good product and a great product is very often the difference between success and failure. So I, a lot of people have good ideas. The question of whether you can instantiate that into a beautiful product or turn that into a beautiful piece of engineering is a kind of an important question to me. So I tend to over-index towards product-centric founders and technology-centric founders a little bit. We're happy to go pre-traction. And the reason why I say that is because we really don't have any rules. The only two things I care about is whether the founder in front of me is somebody who I feel can reshape their industry. So it's quite different to say reshape your industry for saying, are you smart? Are you connected? Are you a nice person? It's like, you know, do you have the kind of grit and determination and, you know, ambition that you're going to reshape an industry? And the second thing we look at is, does this opportunity have uncapped upside? So in other words, unlimited upside, you know, some kind of glimmer of greatness. Beyond that, if you try and apply rules, you know, you're kind of going to fall flat on your face. So for example, you might have early data that looks like traction, but actually it could be a false positive. It could be statistically not significant. You know, very often you'll see companies do well at the beginning and then they hit the natural boundary of a certain channel or find out they can't really replicate that success beyond super early adopters. And so even if you have data, it may not be that predictive. So in other words, your data is super noisy. And on the other side, you know, most companies start out with shitty data because it takes them a while to really understand how to convert and activate and retain. And so you kind of lock yourself into a position where if you're looking for repeatable data, you're going to end up being indexed or excelling during series A's. Uh, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to come in before it's obvious so that the valuation is still reasonable. Um, and because the moment you really get traction, you know, the, the, the acceleration in company valuation is non-linear. 
which is why you see companies that are worth 3 million one day, 10 the next, and 50 two weeks later, right? It's not irrational. It's because they, their valuation creation kind of is completely nonlinear once they start to scale. So we like the ambiguous part. So we like to back people with great insights about markets and who know how to design and develop product, but we don't mind the ambiguity. Yeah, we actually kind of enjoy that creative period where anything's possible and you have to make choices. And I think this is where we, I'm like, I personally, that's where I get my kicks, honestly, at a personal level. And it also so happens that it allows you to come in at reasonable prices. So my job is I build a portfolio of like 25 teams and, you know, I will put significant checks in early. So sometimes we write bigger checks than most people are comfortable with. But amongst the 25, if I do my job with any form of discipline and, and enough vision, you know, five, seven, eight of those are going to be outstanding. Um, and then I'm good, right? So that's why we're, we're quite happy to have no rules, except for these two rules I mentioned, which is founders who can reshape industries and unlimited upside. Understood. Yeah, it really struck me your sentence on the website that says, we respect the journey and embrace the chaos. And it's, it really aligns and resonates with me. But it's it's interesting because on one side, you have to sort of try to understand how your data regarding traction is somewhat meaningful. And on the other side, you also have to embrace this chaos. So do you have any tips to understand when the data uh, of your early traction is actually meaningful or when it's contaminated when, with thousands of variables that actually make it uh, not valuable? I think what you're... Typically, you're looking for very consistent consumer or user behavior. And I find that people are purely driven by data early on, which is if you push too far, for example, the lean startup methodology, you might say, I don't have a view on the world. I, as the founder, don't have a view on the world. I'm purely going to follow the data. Life doesn't work that way. Like you'll ask all the successful product people, founders, etc. they'll say, be data informed don't be data-driven. You really have to mix what the data is telling you with qualitative, including your vision of what the world should be and kind of mesh the two. I've seen people just completely optimize a single portion of their funnel, uh, not think about the bigger picture. For example, what kind of users are we attracting now? Are they the kind of users that we've unlocked them? So sure, we get better conversion, but you know we've, we've attracted people who have zero propensity to pay, for example. So you'll find these micro-optimizations that are data-driven kind of actually detract from the, the micro-optimal. Interesting. And you think the downside of that is, is not maintaining a full picture or is it being actually ending up being too slow because you're testing literally everything? I, I, look, I think testing and iteration is generally a good habit. And if you develop frameworks for that, that actually will give you more speed. I think the danger is, and I, I literally have seen this, where people who abdicate decision-making to the data. Now, for me, every company, every business is a question of flow, actually. So it's you can't say, oh, what matters is that my gross margin is X or my conversion rate is Y. The only thing that matters is that your entire flow from identifying a lead uh, or a potential customer all the way through your monetization method, that that whole thing works well. So what that means in practice is sometimes you can have lower margin businesses where the flow of cash through the machine is incredibly fast and they're actually great businesses. And so whenever people try and optimize a portion of the funnel independently of the rest of the system, they're kind of losing sight of the big picture. 
your data really, you'd want to know, okay, where do I acquire my users? How do I convert them, activate them, retain them, monetize them, all the way through to your PL and understanding how much they contribute over time. And it's really the equation you're trying to, to optimize is if I put a dollar of cash in at the beginning of the system, you know, how many dollars of cash is that going to produce over time? So you're like, okay, if you're trying to think through a business in terms of flow, that's what you're trying to go for. Not point optimization because you decided that, oh yeah, we have to, we have a conversion step that's blocking. Let's optimize the shit out of that. And then we're moving, we're moving the problem down the field. I mean, you always have to think about the overall system. Got it. Yeah, that's very interesting. I think we had previous guests who had a different take on to the lean startup methodology, but it's good to have both perspective. And I do feel as though I'm more aligned with your view. Nevertheless, moving on, we have a a lot of our listeners who are student founders and uh, they're very, very young in their career. So I want to understand what is your call on funding students or very young individuals? Does it matter to you that they're super young? And if there are downsides, that come with it, how can students prepare and tackle them? I would say, so we have backed some people that are early 20s. The things that will typically hurt you have to do with people and culture more than necessarily execution or product. In fact, you might have an edge on execution and product because you're so, you're at the cutting edge of your industry or you're, you're kind of breaking all the rules. So where you find lack of experience hurts a little bit is around, for example, you're trying to build your team super fast and you recruit your friends or you recruit people that are around you at the school or whatever it may be. You don't discuss equity splits early. You don't discuss who's going to lead the company. You don't discuss, you know, how the roles are going to evolve. You don't discuss what happens if a, if a person's failing. And you kind of find that people can go through one or two full team iterations just because they got burnt on, you know, making the wrong people choices early. And, you know, we know, and we learn over time that these first three, four, five, 10 people are, they're so mission critical, right? Like they're really foundational to your company. If you get the right people early, it sets the tone for everybody else you hire and how the company's going to function. And, and very often out of university environments, people just go like, Hey, Got a bunch of friends, feels good, let's do it. You know, you want to be intentful about that because these choices will be with you for four or five years. Like who's my co-founder? Who's who are my first two hires? And if you go for expediency, that's fine. But you know, know that you're probably loading yourself up with problems. And so talking about the hard things early, like I said, like equity split, like who controls and runs the business and all that stuff in a meaningful way is probably. I think one of the key risks for super young founders. Yeah, no, totally. Even within our community, we see a huge pattern of students just delaying and postponing the hard talk of equity split, uh, roles decision, hiring decisions. So I'm totally on board with you on that. Another pattern that we see and that I'm guilty of as well is that it, it seems like a lot of us student founders just really want to talk about VC funding. For some reason, we have this like two steps approach. Okay, let's create a product and then let's bring it to a VC and hope we get funded. Is that a somewhat logical approach to have or is it just very naive? Well, I mean, in your in your description, you, you, can't, you skipped a step a little bit, which is implicit, but not explicit. All right, what's the only thing that's really going to be the key su- success is that you are deep inside the minds of your customers and you're doing something that is deeply meaningful to them. Spinning a product up 
in itself doesn't have that much value. Splitting a product up and raising some venture capital funding in a crazy market like the market we're in doesn't really have value. So no matter what you do, you start with deep customer insight and, and you stick really close to that. I mean, it's not actually that hard to get a 500K check when we're in a crazy market. So I would say, you know, that's a, that could be a very fleeting moment of glory. Like I said, I think you, you want to focus on the, the core. You know, do I understand, am I building the right team with the right culture? Am I serving my customers in a way that's unique? Focus, focus on that. Whether or not you raise VC money is kind of by the by. By the way, the one thing you have to watch is this early dilution is very costly. It's costly because it's going to compound over time through multiple rounds. So, you know, this early days of raising money, you kind of want to educate yourself, pause, you know, don't take super low price rounds from either angels or somewhat more predatory VC funds. It's just like be very careful with the early equity you give out because it's very costly equity. And at the beginning, you have 100% of your company. It doesn't feel like it's worth anything. Are you like, well, who am I? I don't have an asset. You know, I just have a couple of people and a, and a prototype. But actually, you know, so it's very tempting to say, well, we got 100%. Why don't we give 30% away to some angel group or something? But it's really going to bite you later down the road. So I think being intentful at the beginning and say, you know what? Yeah, 15% dilution, 20% dilution, okay. From the right partners, but just like be disciplined around it. Totally. I fully agree with that. So to, to conclude, I have two last topics that I want to touch upon. One thing is that a lot of VCs sort of have this premise of being value-add. Uh, so adding some value beyond just the monetary aspect. Does, does that VC uh, value-add package include traction? So I'm going to answer your question in a roundabout way. The primary thing you want out of an investor is somebody who has your back, really fundamentally. The normal state of a startup, especially early, is chaotic. So what you want is somebody who's not going to panic. They're not going to bring that fear to the boardroom or whatever it is. And they're just going to be there for you to try and figure out whatever problem you run into. So that is a more that has to do more with trust, support, and somebody having your back than anything else. For me, the primary thing you want from an investor is that when it's lonely, when you're failing, you know, that you can go talk to someone and don't feel like you're the only person in the world carrying the weight, especially if you took some money from your mom and your dad or whatever it may be, and you're afraid about losing it. So I think that's step one. Step two for me again is, okay, am I working with someone who can help me answer the key strategic questions? You know, how do we focus the product down? How do we price? How do we position? Who do we hire? Actually, can you help me hire someone? Um, and, you know, this kind of being there with you for the key strategic decisions, again, it, that's more valuable to me because that's the core. That's non-replaceable. Step three would be, can you help me get funded? So in other words, do you have the quality, reputation quality and are you going to spend the time to help me get my next funding round done? Because at the end of the day, the only thing that kills startup is running out of cash. Then you get into all the other shit. You know, can you help me source candidates? Can you help me find clients? Blah, blah, blah. All that's fine, but I mean, that, that's what I would call features. And I think the most important stuff, again, is finding somebody who understands your business deeply, is aligned with you, cares about what you're doing, and is going to be there for you slash with you when you run into trouble. If they can, then deliver customer intros, et cetera. Yeah, maybe. You know, let's remember value add is like the most overused and devalued term on the planet ever because VCs vastly overuse it. I always say, you know, 
I promise not to destroy value. On occasion, I may add a lot of value. My primary value personally is not necessarily in like finding new clients. You know, because we invest in so many industries that, you know, have one in healthcare and one that sells to universities. And there's no, there's no way anybody can credibly tell you, oh, I have deep contacts in that industry and they're going to be useful. In fact, it's something that I find a lot of VCs, especially kind of in a way the weaker VCs oversell. They're like, oh, we have great contacts within the insurance industry. Well, look, even if you get the intro, their ability to impact somebody buying your stuff is actually quite low. Um, so I think this is kind of very often overplayed. And then founders would start to think of this as a package, as she's the way you described it. I'm like, yeah, you know, you can replicate this kind of stuff yourself or via advisors or, I mean, there's other ways to get this, right? Agreed. It's quite paradoxical because uh, on one side, uh, there is a sort of power imbalance between a VC and, and a founder. But at the same time, you both have skin in the game. And so the, the first aspect being, um, all right, find someone that has your back. It's, it's tricky, but at the same time, it, it seems extremely valuable. I think power imbalance is one of the key issues in VC family relationships. And I would always say that it's critical to develop the kind of relationship where actually power is not being exerted against you. Because at the end of the day, you run the company, you make the choices, you'll make it a success or a failure. And if investors start getting into that mode of they're sort of telling you what to do or they're impacting your strategy too much, you're kind of in the wrong spot. And I guess when you're a younger founder, this will tend to happen a little bit more because a lot of people are ageist in some way, but in the way that they don't think young people can kind of do shit. And so you, I think to the extent you can, you want to find investors are going to be, hey, I want to challenge your thinking. I want to help you reframe how you think about problems. But, you know, I'm not here to tell you what to do. In fact, I'm going to encourage you to make, you're, nobody's as well placed as you are to make the decisions. The decisions belong to you. Go run. And the only thing I'm trying to do is get you better running shoes or think about a better path through the marathon, right? Like I, I'm not here to go to go tell you what to do. And and it's really dangerous when VCs start to, you know, project their own desires and their own, you know, vision upon a company. Because A, they're not going to implement it. B, they're probably not that informed about it, actually. Totally. I really like that approach of leaving the founders somewhat alone, but still providing valuable input. But if on one side, we have some investors that don't really understand the founders' needs, what are some things that actually founders don't understand about VCs? What are some of the misconceptions? Yeah, look, I think people back people. And, you know, we... Sure, it's a transaction, you're trying to get money, but you're also, you just meet people that are going to be in the industry for a long time. And you can really build some kind of relationship that may, you know, that may blossom into something else. So I remember backing Emigal, he's a young um, Romanian founder, and I backed his first business. It was a small check, it was just like 300K. But I, I told him, I'm like, hey, I, I really want to back you. I don't want to back this business, but I'm giving you some money because I want to be in a relationship with you, but I want to back your next company. Eight years later, 10 years later, whatever, he started something new, actually based in New York, that does a cancer detection through machine learning uh, and computer vision. And I mean, it turns out we can't invest with the fund in New York, so it was a bit bummed, but I invested as an angel because, you know, I could see that Emmy was going to be I mean, he did well on his first company, by the way. He sold it for, I don't know, like 25 million or something, which was a pretty decent first exit. But I could see the potential. 
And I'm like, okay, so I'm probably going to say no. I mean, I say no like 95% of the time, right? It's, it's, it's a terrible job to be in, but it's, it's about relationship building. And I think founders should understand that. I think most VCs really enjoy working with founders. They view them with sympathy and admiration. And it's like, hey, it's great that you're doing this. So it's not just some, I mean, some people are just the big, bad money machine, but in 90% of the cases, that's not what, I mean, I do this because I want to be in the room with founders. So you could just go in there with your head high and pride and you're starting a project. I'm not starting a project. You're starting a project. That's pretty cool, right? So, you know, just just relax into it. Uh, VCs are not, VCs are just people with imposter syndrome, you know. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you very, very much for your time, Fred. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And in just 25 minutes, you now know how you should approach traction. Take a step back and always keep an eye on the big picture. Your early stage traction could be a false positive and be statistically relevant. So look out for consistent consumer behavior. Also, if you've been avoiding those hard equity and roles chats, shoot a message to your co-founders and figure it out as soon as possible. If you need some help convincing them, feel absolutely free to share the link to this episode. My name is Michelangelo Valtancoli and just like you, I'm an almost founder.